Good morning, folks. Great to see you. If you are visiting, welcome to Cornerstone. I'll echo all the welcomes that you've received. I hope you go away feeling welcomed. Enough of us have welcomed you this morning, which is wonderful. Great to see you. If you've got a Bible, turn to 1, chapter, 1, 1 Peter, chapter 1. We're going through a series in a letter that was written by the Apostle Peter, who was a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's writing to Christians who live in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey for us. And these Christians are people who are trying to make sense of what it looks like to live for Jesus in a culture that hates him, in a culture that is pushing back against the truth of the gospel. And as a result of that, these people who love Jesus, are trying to live for Jesus, are being ostracized, they're being pushed to the margins, and life is difficult. And folks, what we saw last week, as we did an honest reflection of our reality is that we live in a world that is increasingly becoming hostile to the things of Jesus. Increasingly becoming hostile to the things of the gospel and therefore increasingly becoming hostile to those who name the name of Jesus. Gospel-centered churches for a, a multitude of different reasons. But last week, what we saw as Peter wrote the letter in verses 1 and 2, he straight away seeks to encourage them to say, yes, you may feel like strangers in this world, but you are God's strangers. That God in his graciousness has chosen you to be his, to reflect his glory to the world. And the fact that you are God's people is all down to what he has done. That before the foundation of the world, he set his affection upon you. Folks, there might not be anyone else in, in this world that puts their primary affection towards you. Know this, God set his affection upon you before the foundation of the world. Isn't that good news? And through the work of the Spirit opened our eyes to see that Jesus Christ came, lived the life that we did not live, that they're unable to live, lived the, um, died the death that we deserve and rose again in triumphant victory. And it's through that death and resurrection that we have life. We may feel like strangers in this world, but we are God's strangers proclaiming his glory to the world. Amen? Amen. Amen. So if you've got a Bible, 1 Peter 1, and I'm going to carry on from verse 3 through to verse 13. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him, Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news, to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action 
and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I ask that by your Spirit, you will help us to see the truth of the hope of the gospel. And even though we do not now see him, help us to believe in him. Even though we do not see him, help us to rejoice in him as we hear from your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The U.S. publication Parade Magazine did a story about a self-made millionaire called Eugene Land. And Eugene was asked to go and give a talk for a group of sixth graders in school. So I think like 11-year-old kids in East Harlem. And Mr. Lang was really struggling about what he was going to say. He had this note. He said, what can I say to these children? He even wondered how he could get these predominantly black and Puerto Rican children even to look at him and listen to him. So he scrapped his notes and he decided to speak to them from his heart. He said this. Stay in school. And if you stay in school, I will pay the college tuition for every single one of you. At that moment, the lives of every student changed because for the first time, they had hope. One student said this, I had something to look forward to, something waiting for me. It was a golden feeling. And from that class, 90% of the children graduated from high school. Hope. The Oxford Dictionary describes it as this, a feeling of expectation and desire for a particular thing to happen. It was Martin Luther King Jr. who said, everything that is done in this world is done by hope. Folks, this is so true. That as human beings, we can last three weeks without food, three days without water, but we cannot last one second without hope. See, the, there are people who can live in squalor when they have hope, but they can't live in a castle without it. And it's hope that gets people through the hardest and most difficult circumstances that this life has to offer. And I have to agree with a 19th century Russian novelist. No one thought I'd mention that, did they? Fyodor Dodevsky. <laughs> I think. He said this. To live without hope is to cease to live. To live without hope is to cease to live. Hope is vital to the human experience. The human, human psyche, all of us, we long for a reason. We long for a reason to exist. We long for a reason to be. We long for something that can lift our heads from the reality where we find ourselves that is better than what we have now. It is vital for the human experience, but the problem that comes, even with hope, is that the things and the people and the circumstances that we put our hope in are, if we are honest, temporary, finite, and they don't fully satisfy. 
And what makes things worse, we are being bombarded from all sides of different things, different people, different potential experiences that are vying for our attention, for us to put our source of hope in them. And even though we have these endless amounts of opportunities to find a source of hope or something to put our hope in, hopelessness seems to be ever increasing in our culture. Agreed? Sean said to me this week, she said this, we were just chatting, we had some dear friends over on Tuesday and we were talking about things and Sean said this, we live in the saddest generation surrounded by the happiest photos. We live in the saddest generation surrounded by the happiest photos. See, our, the hope of our world is fueled by the finite desire of the photo, but the sadness of the generation is obvious. See, the need for hope was exactly the same for these Christians nearly two, just over 2,000 years ago. The need for wanting to know the reason to exist and the reason to be, not only as human beings, but as God's people in a hostile culture, was as just as real for them as it is for us today. And Peter is reminding them that their lives are to be fueled by hope. But the hope that he talks about is not a finite hope. It is a hope that is infinite and a hope that ultimately does satisfy. He calls it, verse 3, have a look at it. He calls it a living hope. And he said, this is a living hope that is not only seen and experienced by you, it is also seen and experienced by other people as they see you living in light of this living hope. Later on in the letter, he says this, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. A hope that is not finite. A hope that is not temporary. A hope that is living. And in this letter, a letter written to Christians who are suffering in the hostile culture that they find themselves in. Christians who are in desperate need of being reminded of this living hope. Peter, in this sure passage that we read reminds them of three things and i pray he reminds us this morning also that this hope is anchored in the past it anticipates the future and it is active in the present number one this hope is anchored in the past See, folks, as you see in this passage, please have it in front of you. This hope is first anchored in the grace and mercy of God, verse 3. Last week, we saw that as God's people, we are his because of the foreknowledge of God, the work of the Spirit, the sprinkling of the blood. We saw that we are God's people all because of Father, Son, and Spirit, the work of God himself. It is all about him. So whatever comes next, we need to realize that what has been done for us and what we have been given is not of ourselves. It is all according to his graciousness and his mercy. His mercy meaning this, that what we deserve is not his love. We, need his we deserve his judgment for rejecting him. And his grace is that not only do we deserve his judgment, he removes that judgment for, from us and puts that on Christ and gives us every blessings that are to be found in the risen Christ. 
That's grace. We get what we don't deserve. See, folks, the fact that we are God's people is all because of his grace. We get what we don't deserve. And all because of his mercy. He doesn't give us what we deserve. See, it's anchored in the past. It's according to his grace and his mercy. And it's also according to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 3. See, this hope that we have is a living hope because Jesus is not dead, but he is alive. Thank you, Michael. He's not dead. He is alive. So the source of the hope, the source of the gospel, the very center point of all existence is the risen Christ, Jesus Christ. We believe in a Savior, in a God who is not dead, but he is alive. Amen? Amen. So, folks, it is anchored in the past that 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ died on a cross and rose again, never to die again. We have a hope that humanity has conquered death. We have a hope that humanity is in the presence of God. And those of us who have our faith in him have that hope that is real. The hope is anchored in the truth that Jesus Christ died for sin and conquered the grave. That means that our hope is not baseless but it is grounded and secured in historical fact that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And it's this truth, folks, that gives us the reason why we can say that we are born again. He says that there. He has caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead we can say that we are people who are born again. See, the description of birth helps us understand that this hope is given to us. It's not earned. And it also helps us understand the blessings of this hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Folks, when you were born, everybody, one of you, was born. Agreed? That should be the biggest agreement. No one can disagree with that. Every single one of you was born, has, has been born. But every single one of you came into the world via agencies and procedures totally outside of your control. Agreed? Agreed? You didn't decide. You didn't decide to be here. You didn't decide what day to come on. I'm, rem- I'm going to be reminded of that day on Tuesday because it's my birthday. Just put it out there. All right? But it's all because of agencies that happened outside of me, outside of you. We had no involvement. We were created and we were brought into this world. And this rebirth, being born again, according to God's grace and mercy, comes about through the resurrection that new life has been won for us, that the old life has gone. And now we have a hope of heaven, hope of eternal life, a hope that is infinite, a hope that is alive because Jesus Christ is alive. It was Jesus that said to the Pharisee Nicodemus in John chapter 3, if you want to have eternal life, you want to come into the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. He's like, what do you mean I must be born again? How can a man be born again. How could a man go back into the womb of his mother and be born again? What Jesus was getting at, that actually in order for you to come into the kingdom of heaven, you have to have faith in all that has been done outside of you for you. The God in his grace and his mercy and through the, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ has made a way through faith that people like you and me who don't deserve it 
can have a living hope. Amen? Can have a living hope. Because once we didn't, Ephesians 2 tells us, as Paul writes the church in Ephesus, he says this, remember that at one time you were separated from Christ, that you were alienated from the promises made to Israel. You were strangers to that promise, and you were people who had no hope without God in this world. But now, Christ Jesus has taken you who are far off and brought you near by his blood. Amen? Amen. Folks, because of Jesus and because of his resurrection, we have been removed from the realm of hopelessness and transported into the realm of living hope because of the grace and mercy of God and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have a living hope that is not foundationless. We have a living hope that is anchored in the past according to the grace and mercy of God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I hope that you can say these words with me, that those of us who have faith, we stand in Christ with our sins forgiven, and I have Christ in me that gives me the hope of heaven. Amen? Folks, our living hope in a hopeless world is anchored in the past. Number two, we, this hope is anticipates, this hope anticipates the future. So he goes on to say there that this living hope is an inheritance, verse four. It's an inheritance, something that is given to you. You don't earn an inheritance. I know some of us are trying to earn an inheritance, you know, looking after our parents, moving them into the house. We're trying our best, but we don't earn an inheritance. An inheritance is something that has been achieved or raised or worked for by somebody else and leaves that for you. See, we have an inheritance that is there for us, but this inheritance won't perish, it won't be defiled, and it won't fade. And it's safe. Its worth won't diminish, which makes it different than any other inheritance that people may put their hope in. This inheritance is guaranteed. Any inheritance that is left for us, even though it may have a value now, we don't know whether or not that will be the same value in years to come. Especially if it's connected to stocks and shares on the markets. Especially if it's connected to property value. And especially if your in-laws are spending it all the time going on cruises and holidays. No, Peter is talking about inheritance that will never fade. And not only will it fade, verse 4, this inheritance is kept in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. And verse 4, it's kept for you. Our boss is that. It's kept for you. Not just the corporate you, which is true, but you. I'd love to name names, but I don't embarrass people. It's for you. So we have an inheritance that won't fade, that is kept in heaven, and it's being kept for us. And verse 5, God himself is guarding us through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. See, that means that even our faith in Jesus is being guarded by God. 
It's being sustained by God. It's being preserved by God, which means this, folks. We will get there. Amen? We will get there. The living hope, the promise of an inheritance that will never fail is being kept in heaven for us. And God is guarding us, guarding our faith, sustaining our faith, preserving our faith, which means we will get there. But we won't get there because of our faith, but rather because of the one in whom we have faith in. Amen? That's boss. Even, even the... The, the, the self sort of effort of faith that we think that we have to have doesn't even come into question regarding whether or not we have this inheritance. It's a faith in God and a faith in the one whom has won that inheritance for us. Amen? I find that liberating because I go through the day often not feeling faithful, often struggling to have faith. God is guarding and he is keeping it. So we have an inheritance that is unfading, being kept in heaven for us, and by God's power we will get there. But what is this inheritance? What is this inheritance? As you look through the Old Testament, what you'll see that inheritance is mentioned and spoken about for the people of God, um, often in relation to the promise of land, the promised land, a land that is flowing with milk and honey, a place where God's people will live in the midst of God's presence, a physical land. And folks, that is the same inheritance for us. I think sometimes we, 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 we think that this inheritance is, oh yeah, this inheritance, but it's like, I haven't got a clue what that means. I can look at a bank account. I can see the value of a house. Uh, that's tangible for me. I, but this inheritance that we speak of, what, the, what, the, what does that mean? See, it's interesting. Peter writes another letter, Second Peter it's called, in, you know, interesting title, but it's called the second letter of Peter. Verse 3, he says this, we are awaiting a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Where righteousness dwells. Folks, as Christians, we experience living for God in a hostile world. The inheritance is there will be a world where that hostility will be gone. And not only will that hostility be gone, all pain and suffering will be gone. And the salvation that we have in Christ now will be experienced in all its fullness in a new creation. Without death, without pain, where righteousness dwells and righteousness reigns. A world that every single one of us in this room wants. That's our inheritance, amen? That's what it is. Now, folks, yes, we have been saved, and there is a present reality and experience of that, but there is also a future reality of that salvation where we will know that reality in all its fullness. What is the inheritance? The fullness of salvation, enjoying the presence of God in a world where nothing distorts it. What a place. What a hope. We have a living hope that is anchored in the past that, that also anticipates a wonderful, secure, assured future for us. And as God's people, this is what we rejoice in. Amen? That's what Peter said. Peter says, verse 5, in this you rejoice. 
We rejoice in knowing that we are loved. We rejoice in knowing that we are forgiven. We rejoice in knowing that we are treasured. We rejoice in knowing that we are protected. We rejoice in knowing that we are guarded. We rejoice in knowing that this inheritance is guaranteed and that it will be untouched by death, unstained by evil, and unimpaired by time. It is the promise of eternal life. Cornerstone, we have a hope that is living, and it is in that that we rejoice. Amen. Peter says that to them there. This hope that is anchored in the past, this hope that anticipates the future, it is that that you rejoice. It is that where you find peace. It is that that where you find joy. And it is that hope that is anchored in the past and that hope that is anticipated in the future that helps us live in the present. Number three, it is a hope that is active in the present. See, Peter in verse 6 says, it is this living hope that you rejoice in. Whilst you walk through the reality of this world that is not your home, which is often characterized, folks, and experienced by various trials. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. See, the reason why the human psyche needs hope and reason to live is that we have an ingrained desire for something more than this. All right? Ingrained desire for something more than this. And it's hope that removes that. Even the finite hope, even the little hopes, even, even the little things that we move, there is something about having something to look forward to, something that we know is, is secure, that helps us get through what we are experiencing. We spoke about this as a staff on Thursday, and this example is helpful. It is superficial in light of the reality, but it is helpful. Imagine if you'd booked a holiday for four weeks' time. Maybe you do have a holiday for four weeks, in four weeks' time. And the reality of work and the reality of family life and the reality of relational life is just really stressful and it's really difficult. But you have this hope that in four weeks' time you're going to get on a plane and you're going to go to Mallorca and there's going to be sun and there's going to be sand and there's going to be, it's going to be all inclusive and you can enjoy all your food and you can enjoy all your drink. If you know that is to come in, that is coming, and the anticipation of that and the hope of that, we all know that that helps us get through the four weeks leading up to it. It does, doesn't it? It does. We can get through this. We count down the days. We start packing about a month before, especially if you're Bonnie, apparently. We get all excited. We start to think about it. We start to shape about it. It enables us to live through the four weeks for the hope and the anticipation of what that holiday will bring. Now, folks, that's a superficial example but it does give us a picture of the reality of what we are living in as we move forward to that hope. See, to have this living hope enables us to live through the grief of trials that this life brings. And I don't know what the background of many of you are, what your Christian background is, what you have heard or what your understanding is of what it is to be a Christian, but I want to tell you this now. Under the authority of God's word, trials are present and trials are experienced by Christian people. Being a Christian doesn't remove you from the brokenness of this world. Being a Christian doesn't take you out of the troubles that we experience in our culture. No. 
If anything, being a Christian opens our eyes to that in a deeper way. It's the Lord Jesus who said in John 16, he said, you will see many kinds of trials and troubles, but take heart, I have overcome the world. See, even Jesus said, there's going to be trouble. When he says, follow me, take up your cross and follow me, what that means is it's going to be painful. It is going to be an element of suffering. So if anybody tells you that being a Christian means that you are promised life without trouble, they are lying to you. If you think that as you walk through this life as a Christian, I put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm trusting him. I'm doing everything I can. Why is this happening? Why is this happening? Folks, they are good questions to ask. But the reality is this. If you think that Christian life is a removal from the reality of the broken world and the trials and the grief that those trials bring, you misunderstand the gospel and you misunderstand what it is to be a Christian in this broken world now. See, folks, trials are present, and they are experienced by Christians, and there are many in this room now who can testify to the reality of experiencing the brokenness of this world for years as a Christian. They are present, and they are real. But trials won't last forever. What does he say there? Though now for a little while. A little while. It's interesting if you went to somebody who was suffering, whatever that suffering may be, and you said, it's only for a little while. It sounds trite, doesn't it? It does sound trite. It's only for a little while. But Peter is using that phrase, little while, not to be used in a glib way, but actually to say that what you are experiencing now in light of the living hope that is secured for you for an eternity is just a little while. It's just a little while. Folks, we can't grasp eternity. If this room was eternity, let's just say it couldn't be because there's walls. But just say, if this, if this, if this, if this room was eternity... You know, the, I tried to figure out when I was a kid, I'm like, so 70 years, another 70 years, another, and you just wind yourself up, it just keeps going and going. But if this room was eternity, your life and my life will be smaller than the letters, one letter, from the full stop that I see in front of me in this Bible. The time here on earth compared to a time of eternity and a living hope of a world where there is no pain and suffering is nothing compared to that. See, trials are hard, whatever they may be, whether it's because you're standing up for Christ or whether it's because of the brokenness of the world or the brokenness of a relationship, they are hard. But as Christians, we can be hopeful because of this living hope. Amen? It feels like an eternity now, folks. Can I say this? As somebody that suffers and has suffered, it is mere, a mere speck in the eternity and the promised inheritance that is there for those who have faith in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians says this, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. 
For the things that are unseen are transient, but the things that are, so sorry, the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Eternal. Trials won't last forever. But also as we see this passage, as he unpacks the issue of suffering and the grief, the trials, he then goes on to say that actually these trials that we experience prove the genuineness of our faith. Do you see that there, verse 7? Even for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, the perishes, even though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Folks, can I say this to you? I haven't got time to unpack this in all its fullness. This is a sermon series in and of itself. So if you haven't listened, can I encourage you, go back to our lament series that we did in the summer, and this will help you work through what this means and what this looks like as Christian people in that God is sovereign over all things, that actually it is God who, who, who ordains and predestines and God who takes us through these trials. Which, folks, can I say this? Is real hope to think that we have a loving God that is, in, that is over this rather than fate or something impersonal or something evil. See, as Christians, when you go through deep days, realize that it will prove the genuine nature of your faith. That's what it says there. And it will result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus returns. And I know this is, com uh, this is hard to comprehend, and please, I know this is difficult for many of you to hear, but you're hearing it from someone who knows what it is to suffer. This is hard to comprehend. But we need to take encouragement that as believers, our trials are not a result of fate or an impersonal force. That the trials are from God and those trials will prove the genuineness of our faith. Folks, as you look through the New Testament, we see regularly that suffering is the road that believers must travel in order to enter the kingdom of God. I'm going to read some passages to you now. They'll be, they'll be up on the screen. Let me read them to you now. Acts 14, 21 to 22. This is Paul, and he'd been preaching with his team. And they preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, as strangers in a hostile world, you are going to experience this. As those who have been born again to a living hope that you will live forever, you are going to experience the brokenness of the world till Jesus returns. And it is through those tribulations we must enter the kingdom of heaven. Romans 5 verses 1 to 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing this, that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not push us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Amen? Every person that I've walked with 
who knows the Lord Jesus Christ through horrendous circumstances, and God has guarded them through them, there has been a maturity of character, a growth in endurance, and a deepening in hope. James 1 says this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Lacking in nothing. If you read in 1 Peter verse 4, there's more to be read there. He says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Folks, right through the New Testament, the reality is this, that we as Christian people will suffer. And it is through that suffering that our faith in God will be deepened. Trials prove the genuineness of faith. Trials should not be wasted. First and foremost, they should not be wasted because they're not wasted by God. That's good, isn't it? They're not wasted by God. Our pain will not be wasted because in and through it, God is completing his work in us, in refining us, in pruning us. And he tells us there that our faith is more precious than even gold. See, they shouldn't be wasted because trials give us the opportunities to see and to hold on to the living hope that we have. They give us an opportunity to rejoice in the truth of what God has done for us in Christ. Folks, we're able to get through the next four weeks because we're going to be lying on a beach in Mallorca. (laughs) We know that's true. Well, we don't even know that's true now. It might be cancelled. But what we do know is true, that this inheritance is secured for us. We can even walk through the most horrific of times with our eyes on that living hope. It is an opportunity to rejoice that this is not all that it is for us. See, our response to trials as Christians then when we, should be that we rejoice in the midst of them. And when we do that, it is noticed by other people. It is noticed by other people. That's been my experience. It's been the experience of walking with many of you. People ask, what is this hope? What is this? What is this? This is happening to your daughter. This is happening to your mom. This is happening to your job. And you have this hope. How can you have this hope? How can you have this joy? How can you have this peace? I heard a story this week of a man who who was in hospital. He was riddled with cancer. He was a Christian man. And he had all sorts of problems and all sorts of difficulties, and he had to be cared pretty much all the time by the nurses that were there. And one day, a nurse came in and cared for him for the first time. And when she came in, she wrote on his notes at the bottom of the bed, this morning, Mr. X is inappropriately joyful. (laughs) Inappropriately joyful. Because a man with cancer riddled with it, being cared for by younger people and probably young, younger women, the appropriate response is not joy, but this man is inappropriately joyful. 
in the midst of his suffering. Why? Because of a living hope and inheritance that he knows that he's going to. It reminded me of Ron Martin. Ron Martin was an elder of this church. He died when he was 96 years of age. And two or three weeks before he died, he was in hospital. And we'd go and visit him, and several people would visit him, and we'd go and spend time with him. And when I spent time with him, we'd play music on his CD player, hymns. His favorite hymn was, How Great Thou Art. And we would sing it, he'd sing it at the top of his voice. And then we'd pray and we'd read the Psalms and, and he'd share the gospel with the nurses and the doctors that were coming in. As he moved towards the end of his life, Ron was inappropriately, in these world's terms, joyful. Why? Because he had been assured through all the sufferings of his life, through the loss of his wife, through the pain uh, of physical impairment, and he was on death's door, but he had... A hope that had been secured in the past, anchored there. A hope that he was anticipating for the future that enabled him to live even through the presence of the last three weeks before his life, singing, praising. I know for a fact it had an impact on the doctors and the nurses that were serving him during that time those years ago. Oh, to be inappropriately joyful through sufferings because of the living hope that we have in Christ. Folks, only this week I sat with a brother who was going through a horrendous situation of pain and anxiety that is overwhelming him. But you know what was evident in the reality of the pain? A hope and joy only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the promises that God had made him. It didn't make the thing go away. In fact, the thing might get even worse but he was inappropriately joyful as we sat in his kitchen and had a cup of tea in the midst of the reality. Folks, let us not waste the trials that God puts us through. Let us live out the joy and the hope that we have for his glory because this is a living hope that we don't keep for ourselves. This is an inheritance that we don't keep for ourselves. No, this is something that we shout from the rooftops even if the world is hostile towards us. Our trials should not be wasted. We have a hope that's anchored in the past. We have a hope that anticipates the future. We have a hope that is active in the present. And as I close, I wanna leave two things with you. Number one, an exhortation. Therefore, verse 13, in light of the truth of this living hope, the angels long to look at, long to understand, long to experience. Let us prepare our minds for action. Let us think rightly regarding the gospel and our situations. Let us be sober-minded about who God is and who we are and what our reality is now and what our reality is to come. And let us set our, our hope fully on the grace to come. Not just a bit. Not just a bit on the holiday and a bit on the family and the bit on the future and the bit on the pension and the bit on salvation to come in Jesus. No, let's set our hope fully on the grace that's to come. Folks, I will tell you this. Put all your eggs in that basket. All of your eggs. Every single one. Because there is nothing that this world can give that will satisfy now and give you an inheritance and a hope that comes in the future. Put every egg that you have into the basket of the living hope that is only found in Christ Jesus. Put it there. That's the exhortation. And finally, an encouragement. Verse 8. It's interesting, isn't it? It was Peter who walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus. Live with Jesus. 
camped with Jesus, betrayed Jesus, sorry, denied Jesus, was renewed by Jesus, was restored by Jesus. He had a wonderful experience of three years walking with Jesus, and he loved him. But Peter writes to people and says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Folks, I think he's encouraging, saying, look, this is difficult, this is hard, but you know what? You love him. Hold on to that. So many of you are walking through trials and tribulations at this moment. For a, a vast amount of reasons. And this is the truth, folks. They will increase. They will increase. Pain will become deeper, hostility will become stronger, and they will increase in this life. And I know it's hard and I know it's difficult. And because of that, even the hope of the gospel in the reality of now feels like it's being overshadowed by the trial. And it brings doubt. And it brings even concern. In the quiet, when you're on your own and you think, and you think, do I do, but do I believe this? Do I believe this? Can I encourage you folks from verse eight, that even when you are flat on your face in the midst of the trial and you can't hear the gospel and you can't see the gospel, can I encourage you if you have faith, even though you do not see him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him. What is it that does that? It's the Spirit of God building up faith. And you believe with a joy that is inexpressible. So inexpressible means this. Sometimes I don't even have the words to express it. Why? Because I can't even muster up the words to express it, but there's a joy there. And because of that, Jesus is glorified, and one day the outcome of faith will be fully realized, and you will experience the fullness of the salvation of your souls. Because there is a day that all creation is waiting for. A day of freedom and a liberation for this earth. And on that day, the Lord will come to meet his bride, the church. And when we see him in an instant, we'll be changed. The trumpet will sound and the dead will then be raised. And by his power, never to perish again. Once only flesh but now clothed with immortality and death has now been swallowed up in victory. And for those of us who have faith, we will meet him in the air and we will be like him for we will see him as he is. And then all hurt and all pain will cease and we will be with him forever. And in his glory, we will live. So lift your eyes to the things as yet unseen that will remain now for all eternity. Though trouble's hard, it's only momentary, and it is achieving our future glory. We will meet him in the air, and we will be like him, for we will see him as he is then. All hurt and pain will cease, 
and we will be with him forever. And in his glory, we will live. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Amen. Amen. Folks, we have a living hope that's anchored in the past. We have a living hope that anticipates the future. And we have a living hope that is active in the presence. And there are a shed load of people in this room that I know from the depths of their hearts can say amen to that living hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And folks, it is because of the Lord Jesus Christ that we have that hope. That's the liberation of it. It's not down to me. It's not down to you. It's not down into an attendance. It's all down to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, in his goodness and in his kindness and in his graciousness, left the throne room of heaven, stepped into the broken and hostile world that we live, and lived a life that we could not live and died the death that we deserve. All our brokenness, all our pain, all our shame, all our guilt, all our rejection, all our sin was put on him, and God punished him instead of us. And through faith that is guarded by God, we enjoy and experience the fruit of his resurrection after three days he rose again. And we now can look forward to a living inheritance of eternal life. Amen. And before he left, he said to his disciples on the night before he was betrayed, take bread. And he broke it and he said, do this and eat this in remembrance of me. That the broken body of Jesus makes broken people like you and me whole. Amen? He says, eat this in remembrance of me and do this, do this till I come back. He then on, on the same night took a cup of wine and he said, this is the new covenant the blood of my new covenant, drink this in remembrance of me. That the spilled blood of the Lord Jesus Christ washes even the foulest sinner clean. He was broken so that we could be made whole. His blood was shed so that we could be made clean. And that we could have living hope for that inheritance that now has been won for us in and through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, we're going to take communion as a church for the first time in 18 months. And we've prayed about this, and we've talked about this, and we've figured this out. Don't look there now. Look there in a minute. We're in front of you. There are two little jam jars. One has bread in, and one has juice in, representing wine. And I'm going to pray. And after I've prayed, the guys will just play. I might read a little bit. And I want us to pray. Pray on our own. Pray with each other. And during that time, eat the bread. And during that time, drink the cup. And thank Jesus for the living hope that we have because of his death and his resurrection. And eat that together as God's people and God's family. Let us enjoy the means of grace together. Amen. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you were willing to go to the cross for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you were 
willing to take the, the punishment of the Father that you did not deserve, but we did deserve. And I praise and thank you, Lord Jesus, that as your body was broken, we even saw in the cross the hope of us being made whole. And as your blood was shed, we saw the hope of all our sins being forgiven. And because of that, Lord, it's well with our souls. Even in the trials and the tribulations that we find ourselves in today, it is well with our souls because of what you have done and what you promise. And we want to be a faithful people who remember this and never forget. And we thank you for this bread. And we thank you for this juice and wine. And we thank you for what it represents. And I thank you for what you do in the midst of us eating that and drinking that. So for those of us who are Christians, let us eat and let us drink and be thankful. But for those of you who are not, please, I ask, let this pass. Don't do something. Eat something and drink something. Saying you believe it when you don't. Let it pass. The Bible is clear. If you eat and drink, you eat and drink judgment upon yourself. And those of us who, who are at odds with brothers and sisters in Christ, let it pass. Because if you eat and drink, celebrating the forgiveness that comes in and through Christ, but you're not willing to forgive and put right with a brother and sister in Christ, the Bible says that that is wrong. So let us... Repent, confess, eat and drink as a people who know that their souls are well. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight and the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall sound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Amen. Let us eat and drink. And if you want to pray as the guys play, let's do that. And then they'll lead us in song. If you can't find any in front of you, there are people with trays who can hand it to you, but they should be there. Let's eat the bread and drink. Pray on your own. Play with each other. As these play and they'll take us to sing. Let's do that. God bless.